Thanks for tuning back into Asset Horizon. This is Craig, of course. And today we are featuring a live stream that we recorded about a week or two weeks ago, featuring Grant Maxwell, whom you might remember from our Dialectics of the Gods episode, and our friend Kike Autry from the Psyche podcast, and another friend, Keanu Clark, who's active on Philosophy Twitter. Just very quickly before we start, Antioculus, The Philosophy of Escape, is now available on Repeater Books. You can order it directly from the Repeater Books website. Check out the other publications there as well, including The Philosopher's Tarot, which I created last year, Narcissism Bloom, another release, and plenty more. So when you're done listening or while you're listening, just navigate into the show notes and check that out. All right, let's get started. Welcome to Acid Horizon, the live stream here, 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, early in the morning on a Thursday. Everybody's up to talk Deleuze and Jung. The Jung-Deleuze connection with Grant Maxwell. We have Adam in the studio. We also have some friends from Twitter online, including Kike Autry, host of the Psyche podcast, and our friend Keanu Clark, who is at MIT and is involved in the very sort of niche Twitter space where we talk about the ideas of Deleuze, Hillman, and everyone else that we talk about. As I said, we have Grant back. We had him on a few months ago, or maybe it was almost a year ago now. I can't even remember. Maybe you remember the episode, The Dialectic of the Gods, where we looked at Grant's book, Integration and Difference. We talked about Schelling, Deleuze, Jung, Hillman. Hegel and some others. And today we wanted to kind of constrain the focus somewhat to Deleuze and Young. Inevitably, we're going to talk about Hillman and probably going to bring in Schelling and Hegel and do all the stuff that we ordinarily do on the podcast. But what we wanted to look at is specifically, what are some of the concepts in Deleuze's work that were influenced by Jung? One of the things that Grant argues, which I think is fascinating, is that there's a latent unionism that is not manifest rhetorically, but certainly underlines a lot of what Jung is doing, especially in his early days. And then maybe perhaps later in the discussion, we'll talk about how we can look in a sort of Deleuzean way, or what are the Deleuzean ways in which we can go back to Jung's work and read it and maybe even highlight some of the important things that are still there. Also, we have people who are watching us live right now. So if you have questions or comments, perhaps towards the end of the discussion, we'll pull some of those comments in and you can ask any one of us who are here on the podcast today. And we will perhaps spotlight your question and bring it into the discussion. I'm going to introduce Grant, but first I want to introduce folks who haven't been on with us before. And then the grand finale of introductions will be Grant. First, I want to introduce Kike Autry. I was on his podcast, The Psyche Podcast. Kike, would you just give a brief introduction of yourself and maybe say one or two things as to why this work is important for you or stands out? I am really interested in all this because I'm a practicing psychotherapist working with men and masculinity kind of issues. I also do a lot of stuff with autism spectrum disorder and yeah, I end up bringing Jung and Deleuze and Hillman into kind of the work that I do with people. And yeah, I, th I think that's why I'm here and why I'm excited to be a part of this conversation. Excellent. And we also have Keanu Clark, who told me he's at MIT and might be attending Yale, perhaps. Keanu, would you mind giving your own introduction? Yes. So while at MIT, I spent time in the anthropology department where there was a professor who was a student of Donna Haraway, where I got a lot of exposure, just the sort of Foucauldian lens of things. And then on the side, I sort of began reading Deleuze on my own and kind of getting into that. And so at some point I bumped into Hillman 
by virtue of hanging out with you folks. And I learned that Jung has sort of a neoplatonic influence through Karis Gordon to Hillman. And so that's kind of what's brought me here. It's an uh, interest kind of sort of in Neoplatonism, how those ideas kind of have developed through time, maybe how the Aristotelian notions of life could figure into how biology is done today. I don't know. Things like this. Great. And then, of course, returning guest, Grant Maxwell, the author of Integration and Difference, whom you may have checked out that episode in the past. If you haven't, certainly do so. Grant, can you give us an introduction? You certainly say what you have worked on in the past, the scope of your research, and maybe talk about some new things that you're working on. Sure. Yeah. So my, my, my main work is Integration and Difference, which came out about a year ago. And I did my PhD at the City University of New York's Graduate Center in 2013. And that's actually in English, not in philosophy. But since then, I've made the transition into philosophy. I, I taught for a while at, at, in the CUNY system at Baruch College and Lehman College in New York. And I've written a few other books and published articles in Deleuze and Guattari studies. And I'm writing a book on, on the philosophy of Isabel Stengers right now, who is, to me, she's one of the most important heirs to Deleuze and Whitehead are her two primary influences. So I'm sort of about halfway through that book now. Great. Thank you once again for coming back. And I have to say, if you don't have the book Integration and Difference, when we do the final render of this episode, I'll put a link to the book. Definitely get it. One of the ways that it's most useful to me is that Grant is so thorough. So for example, it, with respect to Deleuze and Jung, he gathers up all the mentions of Jung's ideas in Deleuze's work and explicates the overlap. And it serves as a great concordance for anybody who's interested in doing this kind of work. So definitely pick that up. I'm hoping to begin the discussion with talking about precisely this. So Grant, tell us, I, I'm assuming that the folks who are listening right now might have at least an inkling who Deleuze and Carl Jung are. And we don't have to go in and explain their ideas completely, but perhaps in the course of elaborating the overlap between their ideas, we can talk a little bit about the sort of primary concepts in their work or the concepts that stand out to you anyway, such as archetypes and individuation and so forth. So with that said, let's talk about Jung's influence on Deleuze, especially the early Deleuze. What is it about Jung that captured the interest for Deleuze and how is that expressed in his work? So I, I actually think that this is a bit of a rumor that, that Jung was more influenced, uh, influential on Deleuze in his early years that was started by Christian Karslake, who wrote Deleuze and the Unconscious, which I think is the first book length work about primarily Jung and Deleuze in 2004, although it's also about Bergson and Kant. But basically, he says he, he makes a pretty radical distinction between Deleuze's pre-70s work, because he, he started writing with Guattari in 1972, or they published Anti-Oedipus in 1972. And so, so he makes this sort of pretty radical distinction between those two eras. And I think it's much more continuous than he implies. So I think Deleuze's first, first discussion of Jung is in 1961, in that the essay from Sakar Masak to Masochism. He positively discusses Jung in Nietzsche and philosophy in 1962. And then in, in in Proust and Science, he uses the word archetype. I think that's the only time he uses the word archetype in his work. 
And in, in also in, in the logic of sense from 69, he uses the term synchronicity. And I think that's the singular usage of that term. And 68, I think, is probably his most Jungian work. And there's that great footnote where he finds a profound resonance between the work of difference and repetition and the Jungian conception of the unconscious. But Deleuze said that he sees difference and repetition as the seed and the beginning of everything that he did after, both with and without Guattari. And as late as 1988, in the Labba interview with his student and collaborator, Claire Parnett, he says that there's this text that he adores by Jung about, well, it's about his relation to Freud and the ossuary of bones and the descent into the unconscious. So I think that the distinction is maybe, could maybe be put more that Deleuze, by himself and with Guattari, they're more positive about Jung. And then Guattari, by himself, is a little bit more critical of Jung. Or I'd say Guattari is equally critical of Freud, Jung, and Lacan in his solo work. But in, for instance, in A Thousand Plateaus, which Deleuze and Guattari wrote together, they say that Jung is in any event profounder than Freud. And Derrida even makes a joke about this in, I think, a 2004 lecture where he's saying that Deleuze is unique in, in his admiration for Jung over Freud, which isn't exactly true because also in French philosophy, because Simondon and Bergson expressed his admiration for Jung, Bard was influenced by Jung. So it's just, it's really interesting that it's very clear in Deleuze's works. He either, he, he praises Jung a number of times, he uses his concepts, sometimes he critiques him, especially in relation to the archetypes, which I'm sure we'll get into. But this influence of Jung on Deleuze hasn't been discussed very much by Deleuze scholars. And I think there's some very interesting reasons for that that we could get into. Sure. Just in you talking there, it, the mention from Dulles and Gattari's anti-Oedipus comes to mind, where they talk about this concept of the body without organs, which to uninitiated readers of Dulles and Gattari can seem pretty esoteric, but this concept functions as, at least in the concept of body without organs of capitalism, functions as the organizing principle of all desire and all socioeconomic behavior. And one of the lines that Dulles and Gattari put into that book, I believe it's in chapter three, they say that on this body without organs, like on the very fundamental sort of metaphysical surface by which all socioeconomic production is tethered, it, it's populated with races, with nationalities, and with archetypes. And I, I remember seeing that word there for the first time thinking like, oh, this is interesting. There's a kind of convergence between the work of Deleuze and Gattari and Jung here. And that was my first like big notice, I would say. With that said, we don't have to go to that example specifically, but what is an archetype? And how is Deleuze and Gattari perhaps pulling this in? Maybe how are they critiquing it? How are they transforming it? You can speak to any of those questions you'd like. So I think they tend to, when they discuss the archetypes, they tend to be responding to Jung's middle period, the conception of the archetypes in his middle period. And I think as Richard Tarnas especially shows, Jung's conception of the archetypes 
developed significantly over his very long career. So I think he, when he started thinking about the archetypes, he says that he discovered them empirically that, uh, in his work with patients as images found in dreams or active imagination. And so, so he tended to think of them as organizing categories of the mind, as these modern inflections of platonic forms, but that were, I think in his earlier writings about them, he was thinking them still in a more Kantian way. So he was thinking that the, these organizing principles were enclosed within the mind. And as he thought over decades, I think he became more sophisticated, philosophically sophisticated. And he began to see that, that their potencies or dynamisms that permeate process across scale. And I think that he also, he made a movement away from looking at the archetypes as transcendent forms that are these well, I don't really think that he ever asserted that they were like a static given model in the sense of the platonic forms. I mean, one of one of his interesting quotes, I think it's from I think it's from archetypes in the collective unconscious, but I'm not sure about that. But he says that that again and again he encounters the mistaken notion that archetypes are determined in regard to their content. And he says this is and so this, I think this is so often the caricature that's imposed on the archetypes by people who haven't really read Jung. And what he says is that they're closer to the axial system of a crystal. They're sort of potentialities and constraints for becoming. And, he, and I think by Mysterium Cunionitionis, his last full-length monograph written, it was published in his 80s, he's taking a more transcendental view of the archetypes rather than a transcendent view. And we could talk about that if you'd like. But to get back to your question, see, now I want to talk about the transcendental. <laughs> oh, that's fine. Yeah, I'm curious, like, uh, how are Deleuze and Gattari pulling on that? I know in A Thousand Plateaus, right. in the plateau on becoming animal, for example, it becomes the sort of bounding off point for a critique of a certain reading of the archetypes and perhaps the way that archetypes are understood by Jung in the early and middle period. And as we get to the later period, and also with the revelation of Jung's The Red Book, we can see that there is a way that Jung understood and actually utilized images that seems to belie some of the misconceptions about archetypes being these sort of reified categories of intelligibility, the more Kantian thing that you were talking about. But maybe that's one place we can start. Like, how are Deleuze and Gattari reading archetypes, or what are their opinions of it? Right. So, yeah. So I think they, I think it's in, in A Thousand Plateaus, they're saying that the archetypes are re-territorializations. And so they, they want to push beyond this conception of the archetypes. They're focusing primarily on that middle period and reading Jung a little too narrowly, but it doesn't really matter. I mean, they, Deleuze says that they're not even, they're not even after coherence in their own work. So, so <laughs> they can't really expect it of Jung at the same time. And you were, we were, talking about the body without organs earlier, Deleuze in, a, in an interview at one point says that they never even understood that concept in the same way, Deleuze and Guattari. So it's, I think what they're doing is they're, they're pushing concepts to their limit and trying to create new concepts and new forms of language to, to generate new ideas. And so, so I think people can get 
caught up in the minutia of, well, they, they misunderstood, they misunderstood Jung, or maybe they hadn't read those, that, those later te- texts or something like that. But I think what they ultimately did, especially I think in Difference and Repetition, what Deleuze did, is he provides a more philosophically sophisticated language for understanding these Jungian concepts of the archetypes and synchronicity too. I, I mean, we can get into this, but I think that the concept of synchronicity and the concept of repetition are very closely related. If, I mean, they're almost different valences of the same idea. I mean, if you look at the way they describe these two concepts, they're describing the same thing. And he, even in Guattari, even though he's sort of critical, as critical of Jung, I don't think he's more critical of Jung than he is of Freud or Lacan in his solo work. But there are passages, like I'm reading uh, Chaosmosis right now, and there's this one passage that it's a description of synchronicity. You know, I, and I think the reason for that might have something to do with the bias against Jung in academia. And I think a lot of that has to do with Jung's interest in occult phenomena, which was at the root of his break with Freud. And Freud went on an extended campaign, of course, to, to discredit Jung. Freud had these rationalist presuppositions, rationalist and materialist presuppositions. And Jung was becoming very interested in, in, in alchemy and animism and thaumaturgy and things of this nature. Yeah, it's funny because there's a way in which that Jung's break with Freud somewhat mirrors Guattari's break with Freud and even the way, or with Lacan rather, and even the way that Lacan kind of tried to broker a deal with Deleuze, like there's this sort of history of betrayals that we can track in this lineage of thought. But I wanted to open up the conversation a bit. Kike, I know you had a question about archetypes and of course, Adam and Keanu, I want to leave room for you to make questions or comments. So maybe we'll start with Kike. If you, if sure. You yeah. I mean, so I wanted to make just a little comment and then ask kind of a question that kind of builds on the archetypes. I would say, because I do spend a lot of time with Freudians and they're always reminding people that there's kind of different Freuds. You have to think about like pre and then post death drive. And I would just say to be charitable, Jung, like, like I think Grant has pointed out, we have to understand there's an evolution of Jung and he kind of developed his thought and to just kind of stereotype him or reduce him to kind of a simplistic notion of the archetypes, I don't think is always fair. So that's kind of the comment. I guess the question kind of building on actually something you quoted, Grant, earlier this week on Twitter, you said, this is from Jung, the primary activity of psychic life is the creation of fantasy. And I kind of wanted to see what you think Jung meant by that and then how that might connect to Deleuze and Guattari in any way. Yeah, and of course, Hillman. Who, who and is, Hillman, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I think what he's saying is that every mode of thought, every, so, so I think this is ultimately a constructivist way of conceiving our relation to experience. And I think that con- constructivism is very closely related to an archetypal mode of thought and also to pragmatism. So it's the idea that reality is potentialities and constraints. It's, and that we have to always negotiate with, that, that there's not a given transcendent reality behind appearances that we can discover the ultimate truth of, which I think is, has been a dominant, a dominant mode of thought since Plato, and which Nietzsche really, I think, kicked off the rejection of that idea. And then Deleuze goes on to say, that modern, the task of modern philosophy is the overturning of Platonism, but through resources from Plato himself and retaining a lot of what's great in Plato, that it's the overturning of that conception that there's a transcendent 
static, eternal grounding behind appearances. And I forgot what your question was going off about Plato there. Oh, just, yeah, no, you kind of answered the first part, which is what uh, he meant by that. And then how that might connect to Deleuze and Guattari, which you've kind of addressed. So right, I think okay. you've answered it. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Great. Keanu, you're up next. Yeah. So you've been working with Stengers recently. I'm very curious if the work that Deleuze and Guattari kind of do in adjacent to like chaos theory and fractal stuff, if that kind of figures into the maybe way that they play with Jungian concepts, if you see any kind of connection there. Between chaos theory and fractals and archetypes. Yeah. Do you think there's anything there? It's fine. I'm just curious. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Deleuze and Guattari talk about fractals in what is philosophy? Atari talks about fractals quite a bit. I think it was in schizoanalytic cartographies. And yeah, I mean, I think what, what fractals are is they're, they're these geometrical, geometric entities that are, they go through iterations and they're sort of, they're, I, I, you can think of them almost as like a seed for becoming, but they're attractors. Yeah. And they can, they can become in a lot of different ways. And that, so I think Guattari talks about the strange attractor in, in I think, in schizoanalytic cartographies. So um, are archetypes kind of like attractors of sorts, or would you say there's something different? I think that that's a really generative way to think about them. I mean, so I think I, I remember what I was trying to get at with Kike's question, which is re- related to this, is the idea that can, that there's no fixed reality, but rather that there are these potentialities and constraints, which I think can be thought of in fractal terms. You know, when people think of fractals, they often think of the Mandelbrot set and sort of this like, like kind of psychedelic, which is great. I love that stuff. It's sort of sort of just the images of on YouTube or something, smoking weed and watching the Mandelbrot set, which is fine. I'm sure we've all done that. But what it comes down to is that these are these, the Mandelbrot invented a novel geometry that was already there, or the as elements of it were there. And he brought it out right at the same time that Deleuze and Guattari were doing their work in the 60s and 70s. So there are just a lot of resonances, I think, between their work. And so so, so the idea of the, the, the function of reality is, or the, I'm sorry, the function of the mind is the creation of fantasy, that any mode of relation to experience is ultimately a narrative construction yeah. from malleable potentialities and constraints. So so I think that's what Jung means, that it's primarily imaginal, because even a, a reductive rationalist or materialist mode of thought is still, that's a narrative construction that that defines itself through the disqualification of modes of thought that have been predominant for most of human history. And that sort of rationalist, materialist mode was kind of extracted from these non-modern modes of thought. And so I think that's, you mentioned Stangers. I think that's what she's so great about is showing how these science is one extremely valid and generative and productive mode of construction, but it's one mode, narrative mode of construction among others that are all generative in very different ways. The, so everything you've said has touched my point very well. I Thank you for the answer. My response that I kind of thought of during that or kind of the comment that I that came to mind was that I've been questioning like how one could build a narrative by like tr- progressing through a manifold or like going to different kind of 
zones or we could say deterritorializations or reterritorializations, right? Being attracted may be different parts of some kind of phase space, like honing in attractors and just a subset of the geometry. And if somehow this could maybe create narratives and experiences and things, one can maybe bring in like Lacan's like quilting point or something, or like Bergson's notion of several like phases of time being stitched together. I don't know. I this is something I'm curious about and want to like try to like formalize and get down more. So these ideas might be too up in the air for you to be able to say anything to them. But if you think there's anything generative there for you, please respond. Definitely. I mean, this is, I think, right down the center of what we're talking about, actually. In Difference and Repetition, the word multiplicity, well, it's um, they use it in a lot of different texts, but that word is multiplicité, which is mm-hmm. the word for manifold in French, Humanian manifold. And so what we're talking about, it's not just multiplicity isn't just the many, it's, it's topological yeah. relationality with no fixed central proposition. The thing is, earlier you guys asked me before the stream started, how does biology and computer science play into any of the stuff that I read? I think that actually today in molecular biology, there's the discussion of like topologically associated domains. Where there are sections of chromosomes where they have like these blockages that make sure that things interact just in like a bubble. And if you break that, everything goes haywire. Like this notion of topology, this notion of things interacting, it seems to be very present in that field today. And whenever I read Deleuze and Guattari, I get this feeling that like same math is happening. Mm. Right. So, so yeah, I mean, indifference and repetition. I mean, what's so interesting, I mean, that's just such a generative great book, but so what we're talking about repetition is we're talking about this extraction of rationality from non-modern modes of thought is an extraction of linear static temporality of the linear conception of Newtonian absolute time. And so prior to this linear conception of time, this linear construction of time, non-modern cultures tend to think of time in a cyclical way, as a closed circulation in terms of the cycles of nature, in terms of the seasons and death and decay and rebirth and maturation, and also in terms of the astronomical cycles. And so what I think, I think Delu says this somewhere, that linear temporality was an opening of that closed circulation at two ends, at the beginning and the end. It was, a, it was an opening of that, but it was also a reduction of it in some ways. Yeah. So I think what Delu's does, in, in, which is extremely similar to what Jung does with synchronicity, it's a decentered circulation. So if you think of, if you think of, so synchronicity is, and repetition, it's, this is a description of both of these terms. It's the idea that if you're looking at events on a linear timeline, that two moments, this is diachronic synchronicity, there's also synchronic synchronicity, that two events on a linear timeline can resonate with one another. So you can think of it as a string that's folded back upon itself. Yeah, and well, in a more expans in a more expansive manifold, that, that temporality isn't just a unidimensional trajectory; that it's situated in a more topologically expansive manifold, describable through number, and that so. And Deleuze's point is that each iteration of the repetition of these, they're transcendental dynamisms; they're potencies that are. They're situated at a transcendental horizon, and they're always receding as we approach them. And they're complexes of these 
archetypal dynamisms, potentialities for becoming that can manifest in, in, in infinite ways, but they're constrained to particular axes of signification. Yeah. And so, so you repeat, you go through these, this decentered circulation. And so this goes, this goes back to Spinoza, but what basically what Deleuze says is that our task, and this is the eternal return. And Nietzsche never really, he never really offered a positive articulation of the eternal return. He sort of more cleared space for it by, by destroying what it would supplant. But what he says our task is to choose the higher register of these repetitions by the introduction of, through difference, by, by enacting difference through the introduction of novelty into actuality. And this is exactly what Jungian synchronicity is. It's, I'm, I could go on and on, but I want to open up the discussion. There are two, two forms of synchronicity. There's the synchronic and diachronic, but I'm going to stop now. Yes, Grant, I'd like to ask you to uh, ask the question you were sort of trying to hold yourself back from earlier, which is the transcendental, which is probably in a whole new kettle of fish, but it's definitely lurking underneath everything we're talking about here in a way that the transcendental does, which is the transcendental, or at least in Kantian terms, always relates to the imminent presuppositions of our experience. And so I had a question about the transcendental in Jung generally versus in Deleuze, but also particularly around the question of another concept of Jung's, which is sort of hangover and discussion or sort of the standard things we think about when we hear the word Jung is the collective unconscious. Can we read, well, is there a sort of a viability to reading the collective unconscious in this manner as a transcendental, as the collective presuppositions of our collective, like the ways in which we as humans generally or not so universally, but generally structure our experience of ourselves in ways in which we may not even be fully aware. I mean, for Kant, we're not aware of the presuppositions of our experience until he writes the book that tells us what they are. And in relation to the Lurs, and especially to the Lurs and Guattari, I'd like to ask if this notion of the collective unconscious is at all isomorphic or translatable to how they think about the materialist unconscious, the societal unconscious, the idea that we well we are not there are presupp- material presuppositions uh, which structure the entire way in which we experience the world around us, ec- entire transcendental economies, transcendental habits, and I wonder how these ideas map onto a transcendental reading of Carl Jung. So, so I think. Deleuze says that his reading of Kant is sort of an enemy for Deleuze. And he's saying that in the context of, of Hegel, saying how Hegel is a special enemy. And Kant is sort of, sort of also somebody that he critiques strongly. But he sort of extracts this concept of the transcendental, which, I mean, I think a, mm-hmm. a good way to envisage it is that, there, that it's not that these potentialities, these potencies, these dynamisms, these archetypes are in a transcendent domain that's a completely other world to this imminent mm. world that we inhabit that but rather that there's only one world there's only one imminent world and that that these potencies which can only be described metaphorically and through and imaginally they reside at a at an at a transcendental horizon that always recedes as we approach it so they lure us so, so transcendence is the 
the overcoming of present givenness. It's pushing back the horizon of discernibility. It's not entrance into a radically other world. I think Jung understood this, especially in Mysterium Conjunctionis. I think he uses the word transcendental in that book. He's inconsistent even in that book, but he uses the word transcendental in that specific sense. So, and so, and yes, I do think that the conception of the collective unconscious is that these dynamic potencies, which are expressed in in mythology and in, in literature and in cinema, I like that comment, that these are the, they're narrative constructions of the potentialities that inform reality across scales and orders. So, so on a, in terms of the movements of materiality, you can look at like elemental qualities that are associated with different archetypes, fire, water, etc. But they, and they express themselves psychologically, they express themselves relationally, sociologically, economically. And so, and I think that's one thing I've been talking about that with both Craig and Kike a fair amount that, you know, that, that, what are we talking, what are we talking, okay, so we're talking about economic, I had a point that I was going to make, and it's just gone out of my head, so someone say something. <laughs> it hit the transcendental horizon. Yes, it did, <laughs> I, I flew away. Well, perhaps on this point, became you know, luminal. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I often think about with respect to Jung, and a, a sort of shared or perhaps general antipathy that some scholars have towards Jung's work is that he is an irrationalist. And this is something that we kind of brushed by earlier. And there is a way in which perhaps Deleuze's work through the lens, or at least through the legacy of Nietzsche, is also understood somewhat in the same way. But there are very important concepts pegged to this epithet. For Jung, it might be the concept of synchronicity. For Deleuze, it could be this concept of transcendental empiricism. But this is the one area where I think Jung and Deleuze strongly overlap is because these concepts of synchronicity and transcendental empiricism involve this notion of an a-causal relationship between events in the world. And I remember, for those of us who, like like me, I was in an MA program that was strongly bent towards analytical philosophy, the idea of causal logic inhabits common sense and so forth. And thus, the charge of irrationality is issued forth from anyone who sort of occupies that position in the discipline. I'm just wondering, how is this logic of synchronicity articulated in Jung? What's the justification for it? And does it indeed pair with, or is it parallel to this notion of transcendental empiricism? And I think f- for me too, and maybe maybe we can like move away from the philosophical a little bit into the actual psychological dimension of, of both Jung and Deleuze's work. How do these things sort of cash out psychologically or even ethically? Okay, so I re- I just remembered what I was going to say. And I oh, go for it. Go I think it. it's related to what you're. I think it's also related to what you're saying. Uh, But on a social order, we talk a lot about capitalism, and I think the figure of Kronos, the Saturnine Senex figure, is one one archetypal potency that that Deleuze and Guattari talk about as well. And I think they they talk about it in Kafka. 
And it's this labyrinthine Kafka-esque, it's controlling the spirit of gravity. It's death and it's this, the, the, the societies, of, it's a societies of control that Deleuze talks about in the essay. And so I think that's one potency among many. And it's also the god of monotheism. It's the, this, the, it's the father god. It's the singular. So I think this figure of Kronos organizes all of these qualities in a really useful way. And it's, well, is there really this God out there or this Titan out there named Kronos living in some transcendent domain? And so I think the the most generative approach to this is one that was initiated by Schelling in the, what is the lecture is the historical critical introduction to the philosophy of mythology, where he's basically talking about how I mean, it's a very startling thing for the, for Hegel's roommate to say late in his career that the gods of polytheism are real, but their reality is ontologically ambiguous. And so, so, so I think that's true of the archetypes as well, that, that it's, and I think that's why Deleuze calls it a transcendental empiricism is that it's not that, that there are these transcendent archetypal forms that the imminent world is is sort of an attenuated degeneration of, but rather that they're discerned empirically in reality and that reality itself on all scales in terms of our our relational experience or in terms of in terms of our experience of nature, it naturally organizes itself into these sort of axes of signification which can be described as, I mean, Deleuze reappropriates the word ideas and difference and repetition to mean this more transcendental conception. In uh, A Thousand Plateaus, Deleuze and Guattari use the word cosmic forces. And I think that, I think, so I think there's just so many different ways, multiplicities, phantasms, simulacra, quasi-causes. And in terms of the conception of causation, synchronicity as Jung, in this in the subtitle of synchronicity, says it's an acausal connecting principle. But what I think he really means by that is that it's not because when in in modernity, when we think of causation, we generally think of efficient causation. There are the four kinds of Aristotelian causation: efficient, which is basically I mean I'm telling you guys what you already know, but it's just material things bumping into other material things, generally. But then there are, also, there are these two other kinds of causation, formal causation and final causation. And I think all of these figures we're talking about have served to deepen and to offer sort of more subtle and profound conceptions of these two modes of causation. And so that's what synchronicity is. It's a, a reimagining of formal and final causation, I think, descended from Spinoza and Leibniz and Schelling and Nietzsche. And I think Deleuze is doing the same thing, you know, but ultimately what it comes down to is this, I think this is something just to wrap up. This is something that, that Deleuze, I think, took from Bergson, which is that these modes of causation, they're not, even these modes of causation aren't waiting to be discovered in a transcendent domain. They're They're modes of relational description that can be elicited from a, an ungrounded, rela- ultimately relational reality. And they're really useful 
but they also have limitations. And so that's, I think that's why these, all of these thinkers are constantly returning, eternally returning to these concepts over and over again and, and expressing them in new language and trying to look at them from, a, they're teasing out nuances and they're trying to constructively elicit new concepts from the collisions of these existing concepts. That's what we're doing is we're trying to carry this project forward by by trying to draw out, for instance, the relation of Jung and Deleuze that hasn't really been explored very much, even though there's a lot there to explore. Yeah, that's fantastic. Just a couple things on that. Amidst your description of the a-causal nature of synchronicity, we had just finished reading A Thousand Plateaus and we did the conclusion. And there's something about the way that you described it there, which makes me think that even the concept of synchronicity attends to their idea of what they call an abstract machine, right? There, there's a way in which we can view relationships and the relata in reality as having this sort of multiplicity of connectivity and conjunctions such that a notice of one particular phenomenon against something seemingly completely unrelated can elicit this whole range of other notices. And I, I think there, there's definitely something to unpack there. I, I know I want to get Kike in the discussion because I think he has to bow out early. Before you do bow out, Kike, was there any other questions that you had? Psychotherapeutic perspective. I was wondering, Grant, if you could speak to shadow and Jung, the shadow is this kind of dimension in us that's not integrated into our conscious personality. I, I was just wondering if you see any overlap in like Deleuze and Guattari's work. Like, do they get into this notion of the shadow or is there any concept that they unpack that might be connected to that? Okay. So, yeah. So the first thing that occurs to me is in Deleuze's book on Francis Bacon, he says, the confrontation with the shadow is the only real problem or something to that effect. It's, I think it's really interesting because so much of what Deleuze does, especially in difference and repetition, to me is sort of, he's, this is my, like, kind of my one critique of Deleuze is his reading of Hegel. And the, I actually, I think he's right about Hegel, but I think he goes a little too far. And I think what he's trying to do is somehow avoid avoid the negative and that the negative is the shadow. And so I think he's, Deleuze is affirming every archetypal potency. I mean, he, Deleuze uses the figures of polytheism all the time. He mentions so many different mythological figures, but I think in his ultimately profound and sophisticated way, indifference and repetition, he's some, is trying to escape the negative by negating the negative. And so it's this complex paradoxical operation. And I think ultimately what he's getting at is expanding from, a, from the oppositional mode of thought, which is reconciled by a third thing into a more topologically complex and pluralist multiplicity. But the issue of the shadow, I think, really gets us into issues of projection. And that's really central to the process of individuation because as Jung says, it's so important. Projection is is necessary. That's how we that's how we forge ourselves against a projected other. Which is Sean Kelly, who, who's, who wrote a book about, and it's called it's about Jung and Hegel. 
and it's individuation in the absolute. He talks a lot about this subject, which is basically that the process of individuation through projection of our shadow and our anima or animus on the other is a dialectical process where we're forging ourselves against a projected other. But then what's so interesting is that Deleuze, like Jung, is articulating a an exceeding of this oppositional formulation to look at a more expansive mythical dialectic, which is the eternal return. It's integrating myth into the dialectic is what he says in Difference and Repetition. So, so it's, we all contain all of these archetypal potencies within us and often what's most vigorously repressed, we encounter it in the other and so, so that is that gets into the, the demonization of other cultures, other races, other, other sexualities, other genders, and that's a that's a projection of that shadow onto the other. And so, our task is to integrate that shadow. But I think, and I think Jung has been legitimately critiqued for sort of emphasizing this return to wholeness and oneness that that Deleuze critiqued Hegel for. And I think Jung is kind of ambivalent about this, and he says a lot of different things about this in a lot of different ways. But I think it's what Hillman is really draws out of Jung, and, and it's so resonant with what Deleuze and Guattari do, is that we you move past this oppositional relation with the other, not to a reconciled identity with the other, where you attain perfect peace and oneness and wholeness with yourself and with the world, because that's obviously not ever going to happen. But what you do is you expand the relational, imaginal milieu into a more expansive, pluralist multiplicity of dynamisms. And I mean, that's expressible in a group like this. There are five of us here and we're all maybe expressing different potencies at different times and it's constantly shifting. And there's, so it's, it's just, I think it's just a much more generative way to think about it. That's what I mean by a mythical dialectic. It's a dramatization. It's a dramatization of problems and questions, which are the motive factors of being, but not so, so, so opposition is one valid mode of narrative construction, but it's not the privileged one as has been. It's even, I think even more egregiously in like an analytic philosophy, which I think there's some good analytic work, but it's truth. Philosophy is constructed as the oppositional battle between rival claimants and the victorious one proves their truth if they're with their superior argument and the one who loses the debate embodies falsehood. And so that I think what all of these thinkers are doing is trying to exceed that oppositional relation construction. Great. I think we have Keanu next in the queue. If you have anything, Keanu. Yeah, I want to try and make the notion of potencies very concrete in the Lincoln and episodic memory. So I'm going to propose a scenario and I'd like you to correct it if you think it's wrong in elucidating this concept. But let's say that there are two fridges, one at my place and one at my friend's place. Let's say there are different things in these fridges, and that means that I can make different foods, that there are different potential flavor potencies that are embedded in the combinations thereof that I could put together. Would you think that's kind of like a scenario that we can play with the concept of potency and that's coherent, or do you think there's a problem somewhere with that? 
I think it's Guattari who talks about taste and its aesthetics is so important in understanding and in envisaging these potencies. I mean, as the headline says here, potency is, it comes from the potens in Latin, and that translates as power, potential, in potentia. And so, I mean, I think, for instance, I think that's what Nietzsche was getting at with the will to power is not, it's not just the assertion of power over another, it's the will to follow these, these dynamic potencies to their limit and to, and as I think, as you're suggesting with this analogy of the different foods and combining them, I mean, that's what, I think that's what cooking is. I I love to cook. and, And I think you're taking these, the, whatever the, the sharp lemon and combining it with the, <laughs> the f- fiery garlic or something like that and creating creating these these assemblages where something novel emerges, but it's not, it, there's still distinct flavors in, in these dishes. So I think that's a really good image for what we're talking about. Awesome. I hope that clarified the people's questions in the comments about like, what are they talking about potencies? Oh, awesome. Thanks, Keanu. Adam, you're up next. I'm still thinking about this idea of potency, but also aligned in, in terms of particularly going back to the idea of critiquing Deleuzean's very surface critique of, of Hegel as simply trying to negate your way out of negation itself. And particularly thinking about this idea of opposition being its own kind of paradigm. And I think it is incredibly sort of useful to get out of this paradigm because I think that what I think they're restricting about Hegel is the idea that and every Hegelian likes to make this joke. I was one of them, so I know this, which is that you can never really escape Hegel, but don't make them it for you. They really believe you cannot escape Hegel because every difference is retroactively presupposes the unity, which is going to end up later. It's going to end up being unified later in a way. And this is problematic insofar as Hegel himself cut himself off of any sort of future prediction. And yet this one, this kind of retrospective unity sort of completely gets, gets run out by sort of a, a sort of people who are sort of all in awe of absolute knowledge, the possibility of absolute knowledge. But when it comes to sort of new models of myth-making, myth, myth dramatization, I guess one of the things I appreciate so much about integration and difference, particularly, is this move, particularly for someone like Schelling's also his positive philosophy. And I just wanted to ask you if you could sort of unpack a bit more that move towards a new kind of positivity. Because one of the things I appreciate as much in our last conversation as well is how you talked about how the, the anti of anti-Oedipus is a attempting a new model of being anti anything because of course the standard dialectical repost would be you've defined yourself as anti this and therefore you're carrying this with you and it, you'll be sublated back into this but with a different sort of flavor you can expand a little on this new way of dating and particularly this idea of the metamorphosis of, of resistance the metamorphosis of saying no right so i mean i, I... I think that that Heidegger says about Nietzsche that everything that that thinks that is anti to something, and specifically in the case of Nietzsche, and is anti-Christianity. 
the Antichrist is thinks in the spirit against which it opposes itself. And so I, I think I, I think that you can't escape opposition. You can't es- escape opposition as long as you are opposing yourself to opposition. That that's the Hegelian that's the Hegelian trap. And I think I think that the attempt to to reject Hegel, it's an expression of the best mode of thought to describe that rejection of Hegel is the Hegelian negative itself. But it's this paradoxical formulation that allows Deleuze after that to say, whenever someone puts an objection to me, I say, okay, let's go on to something else. Let's, it's, you, exceeding the dialectic, completely rejecting the negative is like rejecting the number two. It's, and Jung says this, he says, multiplicity starts with two. And I think that's true. I think that Hegel is an opening an opening to multiplicity, but he, but his conception of the absolute is absolutist and it's totalizing and it's totalitarian when taken to its logical conclusion. I mean, in the science of logic, he says that the dialectic is the one and only true method. So I think, for instance, so I think what, what Deleuze and Guattari are doing in Anti-Oedipus, I mean, I do this whole section in the book where mm. in, in their, the dual biography of, of Deleuze and Guattari by Das, it's very clear that Deleuze's relation to his father was Oedipal. His father was a right-wing anti-Semite who left him in tears on various occasions, and he Deleuze's brother died, and his parents always preferred his brother Georges, who died fighting the heroically fighting the Nazis. Yeah. And so I think it's very clear that and Jean Wall says this actually in his review, who's Deleuze's mentor, and Deleuze says that he was the most important philosopher other than Sartre in the 50s in France. And he says this about Deleuze, that, that it, in Nietzsche and philosophy, his review of Nietzsche and philosophy, that there's this sense of ressentiment toward Hegelianism. And so, I, but I think, so, so this is really resonant actually with Hillman's idea of the acorn theory, it, and which he called, that's his idea from later in his work, but I think mm. his work was always getting at this idea, that the things that are problems for us, so in this case, Deleuze's struggle with, it's the trauma from his brother's death, he was very close to his brother, he had a distinctly edible relation with his father, and but that's what I think motivated him to express the, to engage with this Oedipal problematic, its highest register, to express the self-immolating critique of the Oedipal, of the dominance, the exclusivist dominance of the Oedipal complex in modern culture, because he experienced particular, particularly experienced this complex himself, and so it, so instead of just expressing this complex in a that's just a typical adolescent rebellion against his father, which he, I mean, he probably did that as well, but this it's that struggling with that, like he, he wouldn't have the will and the motivation to engage so deeply with the Oedipal if it Mm. didn't trouble him. So, but I think the point is the Oedipal complex is a valid complex and I don't think they ever, I don't think Mm. Dilutari ever say that the Oedipal complex isn't a valid construction of psychic reality i think they what they're saying is that there are all these other 
complexes that are describable in mythological terms that are equally important and valid. And Zizek says that anti-Oedipus is the critique of the Oedipal is directly derived from Jung. And he states this as fact. And I think it's probably true, but I think the evidence isn't quite as, <laughs> as clear as Zizek claims. But, but I think, I mean, I think that's probably true. I think that's probably true. That, so it's very resonant with Jung's primary disagreement mm. with Freud about the Oedipal complex and the occult, which are sort of bound together. The way in which you've described sort of Deleuze's life relation to his brother here has given me a very inspiring reading of Deleuze's life, actually, which is Deleuze, It's a Wonderful Life. He kind of is this sort of George Bailey figure. His brother dies heroically fighting the Nazis. He's rejecting all of the... Life has dealt him a dull, a dull hand. He's rejecting the familial structures and then trying to totally negate himself out of the opposition he's facing with capital, ultimately. And then luckily the cosmic forces, because God doesn't appear in this, God's just a nebula in this movie, come down. They sort of show him where what happened if he tried to negate opposition and then simply instead returns back to Earth and then finds a struggle against the forces of capital preserved in the wider multiplicity of the interconnection of people's lives achieving a relational analysis of his own singular existence. So Deleuze, it's a wonderful life. It's the most Deleuzean Christmas movie. And this is inspired by the post-Edipal reading you've given here, Grant. So <laughs> thank you for that. Returning Christmas to its pagan roots is what I'd say. Actually, at this time, I just want to do a plug for everyone who's doing stuff in the chat right now. Grant, do you have a copy of your book nearby? I do. <laughs> yeah, why don't you hold it up to the camera? So like, if you've enjoyed this discussion so far, definitely grab Integration and Difference. As I said earlier, this book is comprehensive with a capital C insofar as it involves the figure Schelling, Hegel, Deleuze, Hillman, Jung, everyone that we've been talking about here today. And it's something that I'm probably going to go back to as I begin to write a new book on Nietzsche. And of course, there's inflections of Nietzsche there too. Also, we have Anti-Oculus, A Philosophy of Escape coming out. And interestingly, there is there are some parallels with Grant's work as an abundance of the chapter that I worked on deals with the overlap between Jung and Deleuze and also Hillman, which kind of brings us to our last or what I'd like maybe to be the last sort of topic or theme here, unless there's any other pressing issues, which is the question of individuation. Because this is a concept, of course, that comes from Carl Jung. I think it would be important to talk about like what is individuation? What does individu individuation mean for Jung? And we kind of brush past it in talking about synchronicity a little bit. But then when we get to Deleuze and then we get to Hillman, Deleuze has this concept of difference in differentiating where he casts the notion of, the, of Jung's unconscious. He kind of takes Jung's concept of the unconscious and reveals it positively as this arena or agon that formulates problems, which then in virtue of this formulation creates these vectors by which difference is creatively produced. Then we get to James Hillman later on, who, and perhaps even maybe around the same time as Deleuze, who looks at Jung's concept of individuation and is quite concerned about its monotheistic bent, because it seems as if all of the images that one might encounter in a dream, in a daydream, or in a fantasy, 
tend towards buttressing this unified notion of a self with a capital S. And it's interesting, Grant, that you point out that Deleuze takes self with a capital S and uses that as a concept in difference and repetition. But Hillman's critique is this. He's like, look, if we're going to talk about individuation, we have to talk about the individuation of the concept of individuation itself, that there is not one singular individuation, but a multiplicity of individuations. This is something that we look at in our book. And I was wondering, Grant, since your book is called Integration, Indifference, the totality or the whole of your research seems to take this problem head on. And I was curious, where do you come down or which side do you come down upon? Are you more on the Jungian side of this sort of like holistic monotheistic integration? Or, or perhaps are you with Deleuze and Hillman in saying that maybe there's a more polytheistic, a more perverse kind of individuation? Or even Hillman says something to the effect of like, look, there are going to be some individuations of some particular lives that aren't really palatable, very unsavory in the end. But the destiny of a particular life was such that maybe it appeared tragic, but that was the culmination of that particular life. So my question is, how do we utilize this concept of individuation to, to discuss the multiplicity of lives? Maybe there's something there that you can grab onto. Yeah, I mean, so I think that's why I'm so drawn to Mysterium Conjunctionis which is after Aeon, which is specifically about the Christ archetype, that sort of monotheistic, monocentric archetype, it's, which Jung, Jung says is, it's, it's the, and Deleuze and Guattari also say this, it's the sort of the biunivocal mirroring of God and the ego, that, that they're in, intimately related, they're two sides of the same coin. And, so, that, and so, so the overcoming of the exclusive dominance of ego is also is also the overcoming of the exclusive, exclusively monotheist mode of consciousness. And so in Mysterium Conjunctionis, it's about alchemy. And the alchemists, I think, this is what Jung says, that they were sincerely believing Christians, but they also engaged really deeply with polytheism. And, and so I, I don't think it's necessarily an either or that I think that, but I think where, where you get into trouble is it, where a lot of people get into trouble is asserting the one as exclusively dominant. It's the absolute, it's the, the monotheistic divinity at the expense of all other divinities. And Deleuze has that great quote in the Nietzschean philosophy where he says, the gods have died, but they've died from laughing. I'm hearing the one God claim to be the only one. And so, so I'm definitely more on the side of polytheism. And I think that monotheism is deeply bound up with, with capitalism and with the exclusive logocentric, that, that Der Derridian term, logocentric rationality, and as these uh, privileged, exclusively privileged modes of relation to experience. And so I think that thinking in terms of polytheism is much more generative, but I, you, I, you don't want to get too holy about it. It's, I mean, these are that's what I love so much about Hillman is that he's really irreverent. I mean, he said, he says that it's that often there's that great quote where he says that the Christians are always told that God loves you. And maybe there's some truth in that, but for the gods of polytheism, 
his sense is that they don't really care one way or another about you and they demand your submission. And, <laughs> and, and so, so, so it's generative to think in terms of these polytheistic divinities and not only Hellenic, that just happens to be the, the Greek gods, that just happens to be the tradition that most of these thinkers are operating in. But so does that sort of answer your question? It does. Thank you. In fact, we'll move towards closing out the live stream. Just want to thank you again for coming on. I mean, we're getting a lot of comments here saying that people got a lot out of this. I'll just flag some of them up again. Hey, y'all, I'm a classically trained chef. I love playing with the concept of potency for a long time. Love this. Jay Lang says potencies as ingredients in a fridge is a really nice analogy. So that's a shout out to Keanu. I'm new to a lot of these authors and ideas, but I'm getting a ton out of this discussion. So that's great. Of course, from Benjamin, we got the fire comment. And actually, we'll take one question, too, from the folks who are listening. And then after that, maybe we'll give it to Keanu and Adam will wrap us up. So here's a question. Maybe we can throw this on the table. Is the death drive a potency? Or how does it figure into the Jung-Deleuze connection? I think Deleuze did not like the death drive as an explanatory device, which that is true. And maybe even to a certain extent, Jung did not like it as well. What do you think, Grant? Uh, doesn't he say that Thanatos is repetition? I mean, That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, I, I think he. I think he, this is what Deleuze was struggling with. I think he's struggling with the negative, and I think that the Hegelian negative sort of embodied that figure for him. But it's also, I think, at a deep. He says repetition. It's a voyage to the bottom of repetition. He evokes Tartarus, which is the domain of Kronos. It's the domain of that Saturnine father who devours his progeny. Like we were saying, I think he was simultaneously trying to escape the death drive, but also affirming it. I mean, it's like nothing with Deleuze is ever simple. And I think that's why people love him so much is that I think of him almost as like a coquette, like a philosophical coquette. He's always, he's like flirting with all these different modes of interpretation and modes of thought and drawing a sort of admiring and bemused readers into his web and then unsettling them and saying something, going off in a different direction and not letting us rest in these sort of, sort of fixed systematizing conceptual constructions, but always op opening his constructions, constructions up to, to, to difference and to revision. So I think that's why we're, that's part of why we're still talking about him. This is just a riff on your comment. And then the question here as well, I think the archetype of Thanatos, which could have some overlap with some other archetypal figures. Right now, for me, the figure of the devil in the tarot is coming up, even though I know there is a figure of death as well. But the idea of repetition and Thanatos as a kind of repetition, I think has as its base, or at least a sort of adjunct concept, is a notion of self-preservation and the way that certain repetitions. And this is one of the things that Hillman actually notices in his book on aging called The Force of Character, where he talks about the way in which for example, older people will repeat stories about themselves. And it's not to get the information out there, and it's not because you haven't heard it before, but that particular repetition is an affirmation of the singularity of that particular person at that stage of life. And there's another way in which certain repetitions, like addiction, for example, that are ordinarily associated with the death drive, can have this kind of grip on you to to the extent that it excludes other potencies. And this is the real risk 
with addiction is, I mean, of course, is death. But what it ends up doing is, is precluding the richness of the multiplicity of our experience as well. So there, to me, there's a lot of functions happening there. I think my last or one, one more thought would be that I think there are different inflections of the death drive. And one inflection of the death drive is just mere closure. It's just an ending. And I think that's what Derrida expresses so brilliantly, is the closure of an epoch. But I think Deleuze tends to focus more on the Dionysian mm. inflection of death, which is a death and rebirth. It's, uh, and he talks about this as early as that great piece, Desert Islands from the 50s. And, it's that, that the, and Hillman talks about this in Suicide in the Soul, that the drive toward suicide is a literalization of the need to undergo an ego death in order to be reborn in not as a qualitatively different person, but to dissolve the ego and resituate the ego in a more, a more plural and decentered multiplicity of imaginal figures. Because that's, I mean, that's sort of like the fundamental idea of death psychology is that we have a lot of different persons in our psyche. And so we don't, so the idea is to sort of overthrow this totalitarian egoic dictator and create a more democratic multiplicity, which I think also is ex extendable to, to the uh, overturning of capitalism in favor of something a little bit more pluralist and life-affirming. Keanu, you had an interesting comment in our private chat here. Yes. So this question of the drive goes back to beyond a pleasure principle, which Derrida has basically played around with and looked at. And there's this group of people publishing called the Free Energy Principle who draw on Beyond the Pleasure Principle and Derrida's reading these kinds of things. And so I think that this kind of goes into their sort of mathematical construction of how things work. But um, yeah, let me go back to my comment real quick. So yes, the manifold, the construction of the manifold. Like there, we talk about habits, we talk about bringing things in. It's like, if you imagine yourself as a network, it's like a new drive is a new node. And every time you return to it, it's like you're strengthening that connection. And so it's like it folds into the graph and it kind of grows the graph of the manifold over time. It's kind of how I like imagined this. So like when I saw that question about the drive, I was like, actually, there's something like particular about the drive that's found its way. It's been re-expressed by other people. And I've seen this idea play with a lot. I think it's very interesting. There's yeah, I guess that's really what I had to say is there's a lot to beyond the pleasure principle in the way that it figures into the creation of folds, the creation of habits and other things. No, that, that's great, Keanu. It reminds me of Adam's talk about Kant all the time on the show. There's actually two more comments I'd like to flag up quick, and maybe Adam can hit this one. It's from a Reflective Journey. They say, I am currently going through science of logic. Hegel defines positive and negative in terms of each other and both return to the ground in logic of essence. I'm not familiar with the negative in Deleuze. Is there a way to sort of parse those differences? For this, really, you need to turn to a text like Nietzschean philosophy or difference repetition, because Deleuze's interaction with Hegel is almost entirely filtered through that of his teacher at the time as he was writing Difference Repetition, which was his thesis, which was Jean-Hippolyte, who famously wrote Genesis and Structure of Hegel's Phenology of Spirit, and also a book on the logic whose name currently escapes me. I mean, I said you've already 
you would have a graph to Hegel here. But it does negative in Deleuze. I mean, it, it does send, sometimes it does seem to be that the negative for Deleuze is always portrayed as, for example, he says that contradiction. And he says in different traditions that contradiction is different seen sort of from below. It is a reactive or retrospective look at the, sort of the things that keep logic moving that actually produces difference, but it doesn't actually give differences its full power. For Deleuze, I mean, Deleuze's problem with Hegel is that Hegel, he says, presupposes identity in order so that difference can come out of it through contradiction, and then you can unify it again. So the way I always explain Hegelian dialectics, I'm just using this to give a general overview, and then go to Deleuze, is through the magnet. We actually have a short episode on this called Concepts in Focus. We talk about the magnet here. Example, you try and have the identity, you identify the positive pole. Can't really do that. What's the positive pole? only makes sense immediately it's completely unstable. You cut a magnet in half, you get two magnets. And that is because the identity of the positive or the negative pole is an identity constructed through the, different, the difference and the relation between a positive and negative pole. They're only constituted in their identity as either you know, the identity of the positive pole or the identity of the negative pole through that mutual interaction. Now, Marx is going to show up eventually and say, yeah, but who the fuck made that magnet? That's the real question. But... Regarding Deleuze's critique of the negative, it's ultimately going to be that negation doesn't produce difference insofar as the precept, the ordering is wrong. So for Hegel, identity is first, it's unstable, and that's why it produces its own negation, and therefore there needs to be a negation of the negation to return a metastability to the identity, or rather a stability which moves through its other. And this moves through contradiction, whereas Deleuze is going to have a similar view, which is that, but fundamentally has a different, pun intended, presupposition, which is that difference is first, and that identity is essentially a metastable aspect of difference, or a, a looping of difference. Very similar to how, for example, I mean, think about, we are sitting on a planet which has regular periods of 365 and a bit days, and we call it a year. So but that periodization makes it seem like, so a year from now, our planet will be in the same position as it is. It's not, because even it's in the same position around the sun, yes, but the solar system is moving. Okay, maybe it's the same position throughout the galaxy, or the galaxy's moving. Maybe it's the same position through the cluster of galaxies. The, galax the galaxy clusters are moving. Maybe it's the same position relative to the rate of expansion of the universe. That rate is accelerating. That's why we have things like dark matter. So the stability of any category which we can identify in thought, in experience, is going to be produced by a essentially an imminent flow underneath that. Whereas for Hegel, it's, it's fundamentally structured around identity, at least in how Deleuze reads it. I think maybe you can summarize the distinction between the two, particularly when it comes to ideas like the subject, the self, in in these two ways. For Hegel, the production of reality and the reality of our experience of that reality is structured like a subject. And therefore, we go back to a logic of the subject. This is a classic German idealist move. But for Deleuze, and I think he's more emphasizing that actually it's the other way around, the production of experience, the production of sense, the production of reality is a process in which the subject is another production. The production, the subject is structured like the production of reality. 
And therefore, the model we have for identity, identification, the I equals I, is actually a product of a fast more, a vastly more differentiated process multiplicities, where there may be a kind of oneness, but it's not a capital O oneness where things are closed off from anything else. Rather, there are habits, pools, rhythms, repetitions, which presuppose that difference in the same way that the position of the Earth around the sun presupposes that difference, because it's grounded on that. It just happens in these circular repetitional patterns. I think that's one of the ways we can distinguish the two. If I've completely got this wrong, someone please correct me. (laughs) No, that's great. Reflective Journey says that makes sense. I will chew on that. And we have maybe about two minutes left. Let's see if we can handle just one last question and then we'll close it out. Abdullah AC says, writes, Deleuze was known for his engagement with Nietzsche's philosophy. Jung too. Can you speak on the Nietzschean influence of both authors? First, let me say this. We're going to do the Deleuze and Nietzsche reading group on our Patreon starting this month. So that would certainly be a place to have that question answered on a regular basis for the next six months or so. Grant, do you want to say anything about that before we close out? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, Nietzsche was deeply influential on both Jung and Deleuze. And I think, so one one thing I think, one reason Deleuze was so, that Nietzsche might be Deleuze's primary influence. I mean, also Spinoza and Bergson, but I think... It's because Nietzsche always was always transgressing and pushing beyond systematizing enclosures and trying to use the language of philosophy to go beyond what had previously been expressed. And so, I mean, he Deleuze picks up on so many of Nietzsche's concepts. And I think often deeply in resonance with Jung, who also was picking up on a lot of Nietzsche's concepts, even though that hasn't been discussed much. For instance, the concept of the eternal return, which Nietzsche only talks about a couple of times and in sort of this very sort of ambiguous and evocative way. And then, but that enables Deleuze to formulate a much more fully elaborated theory of the eternal return, which is basically what we've been what we've been talking about for the majority of this this meeting, which is the repetitious engagement with dynamic potent complexes. And so so I, I think that Nietzsche is sort of like the godfather of this trajectory of thought. And then of course of course he had his own influences. I mean he says when he read Spinoza for the first time, he, he wrote to a, a friend. He said, uh, I have a precursor. I finally found my precursor in Spinoza. So, but, so uh, I, I think all of these figures form this sort of like multivalent lineage. That's, but it's, it can't be just sort of reduced to one, one singular line. But they're all sort of working on a similar project in the same direction. And that's why I think it's what we're doing, all doing collectively is so important, bringing Jung back into this conversation. Because I think Jung has been sort of unfairly not discussed as much in, in the academy and sort of maligned, just specifically because, because he, his work is not He's, his work isn't based on the privileging of rationality and materialism. And so Freud has been much more, much more dominant in the humanities. And I think that's something that 
this engagement with Deleuze's Jungianism could really serve to to shift, especially in relation with Hillman, who, you know, I, I think Craig probably agrees with me as the, the most interesting post-Jungian thinker. I do. And Grant, I just want to thank you. It's been an hour and a half plus for devoting your time to this live stream here today. Keanu, too, coming on the show. We'll definitely have to have you back. And Kike, who left us to go do some work with one of his clients. And of course, Adam, too. So just want to thank all of the listeners again. We will repost this on our podcast feeds sometime over the next week or two weeks or thereabouts. And I just want to say thanks again to Grant and Keanu for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. That's been great. I love the conversation. Thanks for coming back.